to John 17. We're going to finish up the Lord's Prayer today. And in this high priestly prayer of Christ, Jesus presents us with a situation. And you know the situation. We've been talking about it for several weeks now. Jesus is departing to the Father, but his disciples, his people, they will remain here in the world. And as I said before, this prayer is basically Jesus praying for things he wants to see happen in your life. Things he wants to see take place in your life as you continue to live in this world without him having a physical presence with you. He prays for unity amongst his people. He prays for your identity, that his people's identity be wrapped up in him. And finally, he prays for us to be set apart. He prays for our mission. He prays for our homecoming. So if you have the word, we're going to begin with verse 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And jump to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is God's word. Lord, as we come to your truth, Father, I pray for your spirit to move. I pray for your spirit to take what is preached, Father, and apply it to my own heart. Apply it to the hearts of everyone here. You know what we all need this morning, Father. You know where everyone's at. You know what every marriage is dealing with. You know what parents are dealing with. You know. You know. So, Lord, I pray that you will speak truth into all of our situations, into all of our circumstances, into all the consequences that we're dealing with from the decisions that we made, that your spirit will speak truth to everything that we're dealing with. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this prayer, Jesus moves from praying from unity to identity and now to his disciples being set apart. He says in verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is petitioning the Father to sanctify his people. That includes you by means of the truth, the word. Now, now what in the world is Jesus talking about here? What, what, what is he talking about when he says sanctify them in truth? Sanctify can, can be used in two different ways in the New Testament. And, of course, you got to look at the context to understand how it's been used. Sanctify can, can be used to talk about um, moral behavior with an emphasis on a person's life. It can also mean set apart, 
to, make, to be made holy for some religious task which reflects a person's consecration to God. And in our context, in this verse 17, I think it's referring to that second use that his disciples have been set apart for a particular task. This dedication of the disciples to the service of God. Keep in mind, a disciple of Jesus is not of this world. You set apart from Do you see yourself that way? You're not of the world. You're set apart from the world. This sanctifying, this setting apart by the disciples is to be done by means of the truth. Notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say sanctify them by a truth, a relative truth, a cultural norm, or tradition. Now does he say sanctify them by what is socially accepted. But he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Word here is referring to the revelation that Jesus revealed to disciples. The Old Testament as well. And everything he did taught them his three years with them. It's the word that he's been talking about in this prayer. The word given to him. The same word that you hold in your hands this morning. That word. As one Christian says, this is the proclamation of Jesus entrusted to him by the Father. That's the truth. The Word of God. Do you know what Hebrews 4.12 says about the Word of God? The Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Think about that. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing the division of soul and the spirit or joints and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's powerful. That's the word of God. Second Timothy says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. That is what Jesus is asking the Father to do in you. Through his word, those things to use the word to empower you, to strengthen you. And here is the fact about God's word. It is truth. It is absolute. It is inerrant, which means it's without error. It's accurate. And it's the total revelation of God. Period. Period. His word stands alone. And we don't make amendments to it. It makes amendments to us, to our heart. We don't come to the Word and say, well, I don't agree with that, so let me stretch that out and put something else there. No, it does that to our heart. I don't like what's in your heart, Alex, so let me stretch that out. That's what His Word does to us as believers. It is our constitution. It is the ultimate standard by which a believer measures everything in their life. Your values, your convictions, your loyalties, your lifestyle is measured by this. Period. Period. Don't care what the world says. What does this say? What does this say? I don't care if it's uncomfortable, but what does this say? That's our standard. A Christian theologian says, whether he wishes or not, 
Man as free creature must pattern his life according to some ultimate end. Every person must center his life on some chosen ultimate loyalty. Man must commit his security to some trusted power. Man inevitably roots his life in something ultimate. That's every believer. That's every human being. Every non-believer. We all have a standard, people, by which we do what we do. And for a believer, our life is rooted in God. And as such, our loyalty is to Him and to His Word. When you survey your life, when I survey my life, where is my loyalty? Where is it? When you open up my life, where am I? Who has my loyalties? Who has my allegiance? Where is it? Where are all my eggs? For the Christian is in the basket of the Bible. Can't have two eggs here, two eggs in the world. Here. All of them. Where are we when it comes to our loyalty? In a televised interview this week, I'm sure most of you know this, I've seen this, the president revealed that he now, his view of the institution of marriage has now evolved over the years. He now supports gay marriage. And in our country right now, a lot of people are upset. Some people are happy. Some people don't care. But here's a reality check for all Christians this morning. The institution of marriage has not been valued in our country for a long time, long before gay marriage came on the scene. You didn't realize that. In fact, marriage hasn't been the same since Adam and Eve messed it up in the garden. So we need a little historical, historical perspective. The problem with marriage didn't start on Thursday night. It started way back in Genesis 3. And if you understand that, then you understand that things that we're seeing now are just consequences of the fall. Because of what Adam and Eve did. It's true. Cohabitating or shacking up, if you want to call it that, gay marriage, premarital sex, divorce, are all things, all consequences of Genesis 3 and our own sin. This is what God's Word teaches us. But what has happened. Mankind has now deemed certain sins as socially acceptable. That's what has happened. And because mankind now functions as his own authority, the ultimate standard, what he now deems as okay is okay. Because mankind says it's okay. But the question is, does God now bow down to what mankind deems is right? Does he? Does, over, does God over time evolve? Has God evolved since Genesis 1 and 2? Has his view of marriage changed since Genesis 2? To the place now, because he's a loving God, that now whatever man says is okay, then I'm okay with it too. No. He does not do that. Because he is holy and just. And you want evidence of that? Look at the cross. The cross is proof that God would never embrace and accept sin. I mean, he let his own son die. Even the sins that are now socially acceptable, Jesus died for those too. The question is, will we embrace and accept what the Word of God teaches? 
even when it's uncool in the world. You can't expect the world to bow down to the truth when they don't know Jesus. You can't do expect that. But I expect every believer to. And you should expect me to. Because when the word of God collides with a sin that is socially acceptable, and it will, we will 100% of the time side with God's word every time. Every time. Because it's going to collide with something that is socially acceptable. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Stand on the word of God. To do otherwise is a sign of world. It's a sign that you are living as if you're of the world, not set apart from it. If this is you this morning, then guess what? There is repentance. Not to beat yourself up. Repent. Ask the Spirit to give you forgiveness. God's word, his truth is the ultimate standard for the Christian. It's the tool that the Spirit uses to set us apart, to sanctify us. And I believe Jesus' words here implies that this setting apart is a work of God's grace. It's a process that happens in our life as we continue to live in this world apart from him. But Jesus knows that when he prayed this prayer, he knew something else had to take place. Now, in particular, this prayer, he's praying for the 12, the 11. As his people, we benefit from it too. And so he knew for them to be set apart like this, something else had to take place. And he says it in verse 19, And for their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in the truth. What do you think Jesus is talking about there? What does he mean by saying, For their sake I sanctify myself? This is reference to what was getting ready to take place. It's atoning death and cross. This is him in the office of high priest. Freely and voluntarily offering up himself as a sacrifice for the sins of sinful people. You see, as one Christian said, it's not what Jesus' executioners did to him, but it's what he did himself in self-offering that makes his death a prevailing sacrifice for the sins of the people. So Jesus consecrated himself so that his people may benefit from that. His self-offering on the cross is blessings to those who he who was his enemies. Do you not realize that? that Jesus didn't die for friends. He didn't die for his you no know, BFF. He died for enemies. He died for those who spit on him. Those who beat him. You know the God that beat Jesus, if he were repented later in life, he would have been saved. That's how radical the cross is. You see that? The man, that, the person that nailed the cross, if he, that person would have repented years later, he would be in glory to this day. That's how radical it is. The blood, what he did on the cross. Blessings to us. I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. We receive this action of being sanctified. Now, how does what Jesus says in verse 19 relates to what he says in verse 17? Now, I'm going to read what he said, what the Hebrews 10 says about this. I can get there on my small, small print Bible. I'll read it. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 9, says, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second, that by that by the will he have been that by that he will have been sanctified through the offering of the body. I don't mess all that up. Good night. 
Let's start again, Alex. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily in his, in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from this time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For a single offering, he has perfected all time those who are being sanctified. For the Christian, it's a hard thing for us to understand, but the reality for us is that we have been sanctified, been made holy through Jesus' death on the cross, but we're also being progressively sanctified by the Spirit to look more like Him in this life. And to have this, a person must first have saving faith in Christ. You've got to know Jesus to have this blessing, to becoming more like him, being transformed more into him, loving what he loves, loving what he values. You've got to know him. You've got to receive him as your Lord and Savior. And the question is, do you know him? Do you have that faith? As our high priest, Jesus did what the other priests could not do. You know, he was the priest and the lamb in one person. The priest and the lamb in one person. In his book, The King's Cross, Tim Keller talked about a sermon preached by Ray Dillard that talks about what the high priest had to do on the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement in, in, in ancient Israel happened once a year. And on this day, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the temple. And what took place in the Holy of Holies in the temple? Making atonement for the sins of the people. And I want to read something to you of what all this high priest had to do to get ready for this day. A week before the high priest went into seclusion, taken away from his home, into a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him. He washed his body and prepared his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't go to bed. He stayed up all night praying and reading God's Word to purify his soul. Then on the Day of, day of Atonement, he bathed head to toe, dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies and offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone and pay the penalty for his own sins. After that, he came out and bathed completely again. New white linens were put on him. He went in again, this time sacrificing for the sins of the priest. But that's not all. He would come out a third time, bathe again from head to toe, and dress himself in brand new pure linen and went into the Holy of Holies and atoned for the sins of all the people. Jesus did that with one sacrifice. No longer does we have to have a high priest go in to repeatedly offer sacrifices for our sins once a year. On Calvary, it was all taken care of. All taken care of. All taken care of through Jesus Christ. One perfect sacrifice He made on your behalf. For your sake, God made Him who knew no sin to be sick, that you might become the righteousness of God. See, on that cross, the Father 
was not embracing and accepting and overlooking sin. He was punishing sin to the death of his son. Punishing it. Jesus died as your substitute. In your place. In your place. As a substitutional lamb. He satisfied God's wrath toward you. And when you receive him as Lord and Savior, you get a new heart. A new heart. And you are now freely justified before the Father, clothed in that righteous blood that we just sung about. And his spirit lives in you. And by this spirit, you are now being sanctified more and more to the image of Christ, enabled more and more to die unto sin, to live unto righteousness. All through that power of the Spirit. As a believer, you are set apart from the world. You are not of the world. But you are sent into the world with a mission. You are sent. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We know why Jesus was sent into the world. The high priestly prayer has made that clear. He came to accomplish the work the Father gave him, to do the will of the Father, to give eternal life, the preaching of the word, the preaching of the kingdom. Jesus himself says he always does what pleases the Father. And the Father sent him into the world, and now he has sent his disciples into the world as well. This verse is Jesus pointing to what he told the disciples after the resurrection. What did he tell the disciples after the resurrection? What did he commission them to do? make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That commission was given to the disciples in particular, but it also is for us today in 2012. Do you consider yourself sent to the world? The world Jesus has you at this moment, he sent a purpose. To have impact for the gospel. To have impact. To let your light shine. Our life should bear witness to Jesus that he is the Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God was making his appeal to us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you live as an ambassador for the kingdom? Set apart. Unbelievers can't do that. Non-Christians can't do that. Non-Christians can't be ambassadors. Non-Christians don't have the ministry of reconciliation, only the church. And are we setting on it, or are we going out? When you're on vacation, when you're in your neighborhood, on your job, school, where you buy groceries, where you're involved in politics, or in the hospital, wherever you are, are you an ambassador of the kingdom or ambassador of world? Where are we? Will we represent or will we compromise on the worldly pressure? Will we take up the cross when it's uncomfortable? 
We would go along with socially acceptable sins because the world says it's okay. And because you don't agree with it, you're just a bigot. Well, guess what? I guess I'll be a bigot. They persecuted Christ. And guess what? It's going to come to your door. It's going to come to your door. Servant is not beyond the mouth. They spit in his face. They're spitting in. They talked about his back. They're going to talk behind you. That comes with the territory of being a believer. Will we share the gospel in word and deed? Will we love those that are hard to love? Will we speak the truth in love? You see, you can speak the truth in love without damaging the person's dignity. You can do that. The Spirit can give you power to do that. Will we have compassion? Will we have mercy? Paul says again, be thanks to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who have been saved and among those who have perished. One, a fragrance for death to death. The other, a fragrance to life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Your life as a believer gives off a fragrance, an aroma. You just can't help it. It just flows from you. And Paul says, for one group of people, it's going to smell good. For another group, it's not. No matter what you do, it ain't going to smell good to you. For those that are being saved, it's an aroma of life to life. For those who are perishing, it's an aroma of death to death. And you have to accept and embrace that. That everyone ain't going to want to be around your smell. Because you're a believer. That when you take certain stances and positions on current issues, you're going to give off a smell that most people ain't going to like. We have to accept that. Embrace that. But guess what? You're not powerless. You're not powerless. A lot of us think we are. See, Christianity is very supernatural. Supernatural. Well, there's a power living inside of you that the unbeliever does not have and can't have. And that's the spirit of God. The spirit of truth. The helper. The counselor. And most of us don't live in that power because we don't have to pray to him. We don't ask for it. The same spirit that came at Pentecost is the same spirit that lives in you. The same spirit that came to the disciples in the upper room lives in you. If you need boldness, pray for boldness. Paul says to Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of fear. But want of power, love, and self-control. Will you pray to him? And he will strengthen you. Jesus cares about his people. Our unity, our identity, us being set apart, our mission. And he also finally prays for our homecoming. And that's what I can't wait to get to. 24, verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me 
may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Don't you just love Jesus? High priest to the end. Priest to the end. That now, as he sits in glory, he can't wait till you get me. I desire that they may be with me and see me in my glory. And guess what? One day you will. One day you will see him in his glory. And until then, it ain't happening right now, we know. But until then, we press on. We press on. And I encourage each and every one of you. And Paul says, He who began a good work in me will carry them to completion to the day of Christ. You got to hold firm to that promise. That what, what was the last thing Jesus said to the disciples before he ascended? Lord, I'm with you always. To the very end of the age. He's with you through his spirit inside. You got to hold firm to so when you go out this week, pray the Spirit to empower you to do what you can do. Pray the Spirit to produce more fruit in you. Pray the Spirit to give you a heart of compassion to love the unlovable. Call upon the name of the Lord in prayer, and He will come to the aid of His people. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for my High Priest. That He is forever faithful. That he is forever interceding on my behalf, on behalf of all believers this morning. And I pray, Lord, as representatives of the kingdom, Lord, you help us to represent you well in what you've called us to do. And I pray, Father, that, that you enable us to, to stand firm on what we believe and believe and hold firm true without killing another person's dignity. Because everyone is created in your image, even those that are hard to love even those that disagree with us, and we just may disagree with them. So we need your Spirit, Father, to move in us, to change us. I pray for those who, who are sick and in, in need of health. I pray that you would heal them. pray for those who have marriage problems or, or, or vocational problems, that you will provide, Father, for our every need. So I pray, Lord, that you... Um, to pray for my friend Frederick who lost his car in a car accident last night. I pray for him that you will um, provide for him, Lord. I pray for Waikita's co-worker who just who got diagnosed with breast cancer, that you will be with her and her family, Lord. There are many needs, Father. Sickness, Lord, going around. Help, these, help us to fall on our knees and call out to you more than we do in prayer. And I pray for this in Christ's name.